You are listening to the light of today with the powerful, life-changing Word of Christ that heals, delivers, transforms, and fills you with the Holy Spirit. Let God's truth burst forth into your heart. Stay tuned to the light of today with Chris Palmer. It's right, no matter what I say the rest of the night, I'll be happy if you get this right, okay? It is called the Book of Revelation, not Revelation. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so what is the name of this book that we're studying tonight? Revelation. Revelation. You know, I've heard a big preacher just recently said, turn to the book of Revelations. And I thought, okay. <laughs> we're already getting off on the wrong foot here. <laughs> so let's go to, someone say Revelation. Revelation. Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 1. And I want to go ahead and read what it says here in 1 verse 1 verse Three. It says, this is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. So who is the revelation from? Jesus. Okay, so this came from Jesus. This is not a revelation to Jesus. It's not a revelation necessarily about Jesus. This is a revelation that was revealed to John from Jesus. It says he sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant, John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for this time is near. Now, if you were here last week, we talked about how the book of Revelation is a letter. And the book of Revelation starts off as seven letters. Didn't we discuss that last week? And what you'll see here is that, as we said before, that people in the New Testament time period had a very difficult time reading and writing. There were people that were illiterate. So what would take place is that the letters that were written to the seven churches would be taken around and read aloud publicly. So before we even get into the book of Revelation tonight, let's understand that this would have been something that would have been read orally to the people. In other words, the people that are reading this letter don't get to sit around with the Dake Study Bible and pull this apart. So this has to be something that they might understand. If all of a sudden the, the, the person from the church comes walking up and he says, this letter came from John, he was on Patmos when he wrote it, and this is what he reads, and he reads the 22 chapters, which we have. They didn't have chapters back then. He reads the 22 chapters. They're immediately going to start un making connections and understanding this stuff. And so we're going to see how to break it up. But just remember, they don't have commentaries. They don't have, uh, and, and this is even something we should remember this. There's, I feel like teaching tonight. It's going to be good. There is um, a law that we have that Scripture should interpret Scripture. So basically, whatever we find in the book of Revelation, we can find maybe what Paul's referring to, excuse me, what John's referring to, we can find the book of 2 Thessalonians. We can find the book of 1 Thessalonians. So our answers that we need in Revelation can be found in other books of the Bible. Only one problem with this. Can anyone tell me what that is? What makes us think that the Christians in Laodicea or Ephesus, Smyrna, or Philadelphia, or Sardis, or whatever the other seven churches are in Revelation had read Thessalonians? <laughs> what makes you think that they had read the other books of the Bible? Chances are they probably didn't. What they would have read is the Old Testament. So you're going to find right away that when you get into Revelations, no, Revelation, 
that we want to be able to rely on the use of the Old Testament. So if you're going to understand the book of Revelation, we're going to have to be and uh, be able to really make connections to the Old Testament right off the bat. So improving your accuracy, number one, uh, right, if you're writing notes, you take this down, improving your accuracy of the Old Testament is going to really help your range in understanding the book of Revelation. The Revelation. It's one Revelation. Now, if you're going to use Revelations, that would be more like Daniel because there's numerous Revelations in that book, but we only have one in this book. Number two, let's go to Revelation 22, 10, 18 and 19. The first fallacy that we have of people in Revelation is it's hard to understand and this is supposed to be something that only, you know, John Hagee can understand when he talks about the blood moons and when he talks about all, you know, this is John Hagee's field. This is Mike Evans's field. This is, you know, uh, uh, who's the guy that used to be on television? Uh, he's right over here in Michigan. Jack Van Impey can understand Revelation, but we can't understand it, right? Well, let's read what it says in Revelation 22. Then he instructed me, do not seal up the prophetic words in this book, for the time is near. And I solemnly declare that everyone who hears the words of this prophecy written in this book, if anyone adds to what is written here, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. That doesn't sound good, does it? <laughs> and if anyone removes any of the words from this book of prophecy, God will remove that person's share in the tree of life and in the holy city that are described in this book. Well, this is a scripture right here that goes against universalism. Universalism is a belief that's becoming very popular in the day and age that we're living in, more so than it ever has before. And the belief in universalism is, is simply that there is no hell. Everybody's going to be reconciled into God and go to heaven. And I was just in a class on Thursday night, and the professor was playing devil's advocate with the students about the fact that there's ultimate reconciliation in the end, and everyone's going to be reconciled into God. And he was playing the part of the Christians who believe that there's no hell. And he was winning and beating the whole class full of people like myself. Whether you think I'm smart in the Word of God or not, there was other students at my, at my level of understanding the Scripture, and the, the professor was beating us all down. And we are throwing Scriptures at him. And <laughs> so don't think that just because you believe in hell and you think that Lazarus and you know Lazarus' account, Abraham's bosom, you're going to use these arguments, you're going to win. You've got to get sharp because you're going to meet people that come along that don't believe in hell and they're going to say they're Christians, and they're going to say that they love God, and they believe that God loves everyone so much that in the end love wins, and no one's going to hell because God can't send people to hell. It goes against the principle of love. And you've got to know what the Bible says because you will lose, and you're not going to prove hell using Jesus' uh, uh, Jesus's teachings. You're going to have to know what John and Paul believed and what the further progressive revelation of Jesus came from after he had spoken in the Gospels. You won't win with just the Gospels. That's why we don't have the Gospels. That's why we didn't end there. We talked about the other night how the Word of God is progressive. You start over here in the, in the Old Testament, you don't see much mention of the afterlife. You have a wide version of Scripture, okay? So you don't see afterlife anywhere in here. But as the Word of God goes along, it starts to get more narrow. And by the time you get to the end of Revelation, you start seeing very clearly, not everyone's going to go to heaven. There is an afterlife, and there are two resurrections of the just and the unjust. And people are thrown into the lake of fire with the devil and all his angels. But, and I feel led to talk about this tonight, universalism is the belief that there is no hell. It is an accepted evangelical position. You can be an evangelical Christian and believe that and still be considered evangelical. Believe it or not. Now, you're not, if you tell me that, I can't accept you. I believe that's heretical and it's heresy. 
I asked a teacher of mine, who, and a professor, I said, do you think they're heretics? He says, well, I think they're heretics. He says, but most of the scholars that are out there, they don't consider them heretics. They just consider them misinterpreting parts of Scripture, but not enough to be considered heretics. Isn't that amazing? How do you think the apostles would feel about that? So I think it's something to say that it's important for us to understand this last piece and this last book of the Bible. And I will tell you, the more people live and the more people get older and the more and more you're going to start seeing war and people get torn apart and the innocent dying, uh, things happening in Iraq and Iran where people are getting killed and maybe have never had a chance to hear the gospel, people are going to start leaning towards this belief. And you have to hold the position that God is just. God is fair. So for the people that have never heard the word of God, you're going to understand that there has to be some type of explanation for it that you or I or the people with the other position can explain. Amen. Am I preaching to you tonight? But on the same sense, you've got to understand God can't lie. If he says there's a hell and he says people are going to get thrown in it, they're going to get thrown in it. And so if we don't preach hell, it removes the urgency to even witness and evangelize and tell people about Jesus. And the one thing I asked the professor that he could not answer, and I started to see where he was starting, the argument was starting to crack. I said, if there is no hell and there's ultimate reconciliation, then why are we doing what we're doing? Why am I preaching? I said, I'm in ministry, professor, doctor. I says, why am I even doing what I'm doing? Why am I studying the Word of God? Why am I even in Bible college? Why am I not in the club tonight fulfilling the, the desires of my flesh? Why do I even have to die and deny myself? What's the point? If, we're not, if this is not working towards anything, I'm going to give up and quit. And he couldn't answer that. That's where you lost. But you've got to be smart. This is why at Light of Today, I don't want Christians that don't think. Think about why you believe what you believe. And after you think about it a while, study it and look at what other people would say about it that disagree with you. Look at what people think. Oh my gosh, this is the stuff you've been believing your whole life that you've heard from the church. Write it down and ask, why do I believe this about this? And then go find out what the other person believes about it. And don't just go defensively. Be open to learn. And when you have done that, then guess what? You are going to master what you believe. And when that person comes along, see, people that immediately take the defensive when they hear another belief are people that are not firm enough in their own beliefs. The moment someone comes, if a Jehovah's Witness came in here and you were nervous about them beating you at your position. You know what would happen? The minute they started talking, you would get all, blah, 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 and you'd try and fire off as many rockets as you had. If you were comfortable and you knew their position, you would let them talk. Because when they're done talking, you could pull the carpet right from them. But, the moment you, but if you don't do your studying, you're going to be grappling, and you're not going to win. Right? So can we study Revelation tonight? All right, we're going to start seeing this important. Um, well, first of all, this is the last book of the Bible. Did anybody ever not? Did anyone here not know that? <laughs> this is the last. This is the end. This is where the it should say the end at it. Um, the author is John the Apostle, and this is the disciple of Jesus, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James, who was killed in Acts chapter twelve. So he has a brother who has been martyred. Now all this plays the position in all this. I mean, he's a writer. This is all going to start influencing the idea. Number one, he walked with Jesus. He was the youngest apostle of Jesus, and he was a disciple whom Jesus loved. He was the one that Jesus told to his mother Mary, take this, take my son into your arms. He said to him, this is, woman, behold thy son. Very special apostle of Jesus. And interestingly enough, this is the only disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ that was not martyred. He died as an old man on the island of Patmos. And if I can shake this up, there are some people that are goofy, but just so you know, it exists out there. There is a school of... 
believe that actually still believes Apostle John is still alive somewhere on this earth. Of course, I don't believe he's alive, but some people out there believe he's alive. I'm just telling you what's out there. All right? Um, so the question that we first have to ask ourselves when we go into the book of Revelation, and you're going to see why this is important in just a second, is when was it written? You say, why does it matter when it was written? It's going to make, make a whole big interpret. It's going to make us decide how we want to interpret this. There's two theories about when the book of Revelation was written. Number one, it was written sometime between 60, maybe 69 or 67, 69 uh, AD. 67, 69 AD. Now, why would that be important? Well, before I share that with you, the most widely accepted school is that it was written in 96 AD. Does anybody have any idea why it would be important when it was written? Okay, let me explain. When did the Temple of Jerusalem fall? 70 AD, correct? So, people that believe this book was written in 67, 68, 69 AD believe that most of the prophecy written in this book was going to be fulfilled when the Temple of Jerusalem fell. And so people that believe for early writing of the book of Revelation will tell you that because it's written early, everything in this book has pretty much been fulfilled. That all we're reading, is this interesting to you guys tonight? That all we're reading is simply prophecy that has already come to pass and therefore there is not much about this book that is yet future and it is a very popular, popular belief. You say, I've never heard of this belief. It's because most of the people I know here tonight, you're in Pentecostal churches. You don't leave the, 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 the Pentecostal or you know, the, the Presbyterian church maybe or whatever church you're involved in. But if you go to, I just said, a Presbyterian church, you go to a Lutheran church, maybe a Baptist church, you're going to find out that there are people there that are going to say, hey, this book's not really much future. But if you believe that the book was written in 96 AD, then guess what? the temple in Jerusalem had already fallen. Therefore, most of the stuff when it talks about judgment cannot possibly be talking about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Therefore, it's going to start pointing to fulfillment that needs to take place. Got it? So what do I believe? Well, pastor of this church believes that there is a later date, 96 AD. And why do I believe there's a later date? Because anytime you have a matter like this, it's important that you go to the church fathers. The one thing I will talk about for the people at the church who desire to be smarter, and I understand everyone has, um, you know, a lot to do, and not, not everyone's a minister. You know, people that come to my church are not ministers. People here have jobs. You guys go to school. You guys wake up, you know, 5 o'clock in the morning. You're at the gym. You come home. You've got to make dinner for your family. Not everyone has time to just worry about when Revelation was fulfilled. Got it. But at the same time, there are people that want to know about this kind of stuff, and they're interested in it. And so when we do classes and stuff at the church, one thing I'm going to help develop in people is a love for to go deeper in the Word of God. We're going to develop families. We're going to have a, a church, a children's ministry. The Spirit of God was ministering to me this afternoon when I was in prayer, and uh, He was very authoritative to me about our children's ministry at the church and told me, you're responsible to see to it that the young children that I send to your church get a good foundation in the Word of God. That's your assignment. Do you understand? 
And I said, yes, Lord, your servant, your servant hears. I will do that. Send me the workers, send me the people, and send me the help, and I'll make sure that I indoctrinate your young people with an understanding of who Jesus is, who his word is, and that they become uh, a very uh, powerful in their beliefs. Because I remember as a young person, I still sing some of the songs that I sung in Sunday school today. I went online on YouTube the other day and found an old GT in the Halo Express tape and was listening to it. Tape my dad, who's sitting back there, used to play for me when I was a kid and still sing those songs. And so there'll be a powerful children's ministry, not just veggie tales and, and uh, goldfish and apple juice. But I'm talking about young people, young children coming because we're going to see in just a second, it is very possible that we are not the generation in which Jesus is going to come back in. <gasps> How could you say that, Brother Palmer? Well, I'll tell you what, every generation before was, was wrong when they said that. So let's not be arrogant and believe. You know what Jesus says? He says, don't say that you're the generation in which I come back. He just said, be watchful. So whether we are or whether we're not, we're going to be watchful. And you know how you become watchful? You teach young people. So if we're not the generation in which Jesus is going to come back in, then we have to prepare young people and teach them to be watchful. Amen. Yeah. I think this is good tonight. You guys hear it. Uh, so I believe that, uh, so one thing that I'm going to, but, but, so we're going to have a good children's ministry. And at the same time, we're going to have a powerful marriage ministry, marriage ministry, because I want to see single people get married at my church. And I want to see marriage and marriages grow because marriages are the basic building block of society. Not going to go long without talking about marriages at my church. Not going to let, uh, I'll, we'll do marriage seminars and stuff. I'd like to have get speakers in down the road. But we want to have good marriages at our church. Amen. Amen. No, I want single people. I'm not going to be one of these pastors that say, single people, embrace your singlehood and be single as long as... No, no, no. I'm going to say, if you're at the age, go get married. Go out there and get married. Stop playing around. You need a spouse. Amen. There's not all, I, I said this to someone. I said, you know, stop. people always have this divine reason for being single. The only reason you're single is because you've chosen to be single. Right? The only reason I'm single is because I've chosen to be single. There's no defined meaning behind it. You only have so long to do this thing, right? <laughs> Call it there. Amen. I'm, I'm misbehaving in the last couple services. If you're there Friday night, I just need a spanking after that service. Um, so what do we do, though, when we want to go deeper into the Word of God? I want to develop scholars. People, I want my people to think, when you have a question about something that is ambiguous in the Scripture, do you know where you go to? You go to the church... Fathers. Someone say the church fathers. Church and that means first century disciples. These are the disciples of the disciples. And the disciples of the disciples' disciples. And you'll find out that, let me ask you this. How many, if you had a certain question about Jesus that was ambiguous in the scripture, how many people would believe um, Somebody from 1960 over somebody from maybe 180. It's close to say the person that is uh, farthest removed from Jesus probably going to be a little bit more inaccurate. So there was John, and he had a disciple whose name was Polycarp. He was burned at the stake. He's one of the most well-known church apostles. This was a direct understudy of the apostle John. Polycarp had a disciple the Bishop of Lyons, his name was Irenaeus. Irenaeus' works, you can read different things that he had to say. One of the things Irenaeus said was that this book of Revelation, he was talking about the letter of John, was written near the end of Domitian's reign. 
Domitian was the emperor over Rome in 96 AD. So you know what that means? The closest accuracy that we have for this means that there was a later date and that most of the book of Revelation is still yet awaiting fulfillment. So we're going to see where that falls in place. Are you guys here tonight? Clement of Alexandria, he was a bishop of Alexandria. Some people believe he's the author of Hebrews. says that John returned from the island of Patmos, in a quote, after the old tyrant was dead. And that tyrant, who was recognized by Eusebius, Eusebius was the father of church history, Eusebius said that that tyrant that um, Clement was talking about was Domitian. So we have two credible witnesses that we can take this as being fulfilled in 96 AD. Are you guys with me? Okay. So the most important thing that we can now see, what we're not going to do tonight is I'm not going to sit here and tell you what the seven heads and ten horns are on the beast. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to sit here and tell you what the locusts are that come out of the bottomless pit. They're helicopters. I know they're helicopters, brother. They're helicopters. I just know they're just going to shoot things and blow people's faces apart, right? (laughs) Well, I mean, if I was here tonight and we went through all that kind of stuff, this would really be no different than any other class that comes along and they become newspaper prophets. You know, we're not newspaper interpreters, right? So what we're not trying to do is uh, develop um, a hermeneutic or uh, what I mean by a hermeneutic is that we're not trying to come up with ideas based upon what we read in the newspaper. So many times people pick up the USA Today and they see something that happens to Israel and they think, well, this is what's going on in Revelation. Yeah, this is it. This is it. Well, how do you think they felt in 1948? They think all this prophecy is coming to pass. Well, what about 1967? They think all this prophecy is coming to pass. What do you think they felt about World War II when they started seeing all the nations moving in on Israel? They see Hitler moving on Israel. This is definitely a fulfillment of prophecy. Here comes the man from the north. He's coming down. He's going to attack Israel. And then all of a sudden, you know, what's going on? It's just going to keep going on and on like this. Do you, do you know that if you look at what happened in Europe since the 1400s, do you know how many times since the 14th century Europeans have changed their boundaries because of war hundreds and hundreds of times those countries you look at the Hungarian Empire you look at the Ottoman Turks you look at the Gauls look at how many times these countries changed and extended their borders you'll find out it's hundreds of times and this does not come without political moves it doesn't come without people suffering and dying and it doesn't come without people being jeopardized what I'm trying to say is that when things in Scripture are going to come to pass, it will be very, very obvious for us that these are fulfillments of prophecy. Just because there's a war, just because Russia takes over the Crimea in Ukraine does not necessarily mean that this is fulfilling prophecy. Are you guys with me? What it means is simply this. You as a Christian should just be very watchful to know Jesus is coming soon. What does it mean? He's coming. So when is he coming? I don't know when he's coming, but I know he's coming, and all we can do is seek to do what God tells us to do upon the earth. Minister his word. Don't get too busy, like I put on Facebook today, to believe. Don't get too busy to believe that uh, we don't have to minister. Always take every opportunity and do what God calls you to do, and you'll find fulfillment in that. Amen? Amen? The most important thing that we can do is discover what was going on when Revelation was written. Now that we've established that it's been written in 96 AD, we need to find out what the historical context is in this book. You know, we talked about at the very beginning of these seminars what historical context is, correct? What's, does anybody know what historical context is? It means what is going on when this letter has been written. 
So let's go, if you have your Bible this evening, um, to Revelation 1, verse 9. Let's see what was happening. Is this interesting to anybody at all? Okay, Revelation 1, verse 9. I, John, am your brother and partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. That, that, doesn't, sound, that doesn't sound like how you want to end your race as somebody that has been serving the Lord Jesus their whole life. You realize that much of which God calls us to do a lot of times doesn't come with reward in this life that we live in. Amen. So the very first thing that John tells us is that he's under persecution. I've preached on this before, what John's persecution was. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 9, if you have your Bible. And we know in the book of Revelation that number, in chapter 1 we have an introduction where John has a vision of Jesus as a man standing between seven candlesticks. Those seven candlesticks represent the churches. It's been a long time. Anyone had heard, hadn't heard Revelation in a while, right? In a while, right? Well, the last time you read Revelation, try to think about what it means. You just get hung up. Go on. I tell you this: number one rule about studying Revelation: don't Google nothing. <laughs> Stay off the internet. <laughs> Stay off YouTube. <laughs> uh, chapter two, verse nine. He's writing to the church in Smyrna, and he says, "I know about your suffering and your poverty. You should write. You should underline those things because this is historical context here. But you're rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they're Jews, but they're not, because the synagogue belongs to Satan." Don't be afraid about what you're to suffer. So all of a sudden you see suffering. Drop down to verse number 13. This is the message to the church at Pergamum. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you remain loyal to me. You've refused to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you in Satan's city. So again, we see heavy persecution in the city of Satan, Pergamum. That's an interesting study, what that actually means, why he's saying that. Go to chapter 3, verse 8. 3 verse 8, I know the things you did, I know all the things you do, this is the church at Philadelphia, and I've opened a door for you that no one can close, you have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. He's talking about in the face of persecution. Then you go to chapter 6 and verse 9, and you're going to see before the throne of God, in this vision that the apostle John is having between the opening of the six seals, what we'll talk about in just a second, that there's going to be a vision that John enters into, and what does he see in chapter 6? And verse number 9, as he sees, let's read it. It says here, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all those who had been martyred for the word and for, of God and for being faithful in their testimony. So here we see these are saints that have died. And they're not saints that have died today. These are saints that, if you were reading, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that those 21 Christians that were killed by ISIS in Tripoli, in Liberia, I'm certain that those are going to make up the martyrs. They're going to receive a special award that you and I are not going to receive if we're not martyrs. Okay? But if you were a New Testament Christian and someone had come around with this letter and was reading it out loud, you would understand it not to be the Christians of those days. So there's a major persecution that is happening to the believers. So the first thing to understand is that this, uh, that this letter is being written in the face of persecution. Well, the question is then, Shar, where is this persecution coming from? Because you'll understand that the New Testament church was not as persecuted as you think it was at the very beginning. 
Major persecution did not break out for the apostles. You'll see persecution in the book of Acts. That persecution was not coming from the Gentiles. In the book of Acts, who was killing Stephen? Jews. Who was stoning? Uh, 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 and you see Herod uh, Agrippa taking off James's head. But again, that's coming from inside Judea. The persecution that the New Testament saints were getting was from within. But then, around 96, after the 70 AD is when you had the fall of Jerusalem, that's when Emperor Titus comes in, destroys, the, destroys Jerusalem, and now you have this madman, and his name is Domitian, and he comes along, and he starts killing all these Christians. Because before Titus, you had Nero. He was the one that started the whole city of, on, uh, of Rome on fire, right? Starts the whole city of Rome on fire, and blames the Christians for doing it because he hated the Christians and then all of a sudden you have the fall of Jerusalem and now all of a sudden 96 AD you have this guy coming in and he hates Christians. He was considered savage, cruel, he was devious and sexually immoral, he was mad and he was an evil emperor. This is what one of the historians that were secular said about the emperor of that day. Quote, It is the place where that fearful monster built his fences with untold terrors. Where lurking in his den, he picked up the blood of his murdered relatives or emerged to plot the massacre and destruction of his most distinguished subjects. Menace and horror were the sentiments at his door. Always he sought darkness and mystery and only emerged from the desert of his solitude. Sounds like, no matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat, whoever was in office is probably better than this, right? I mean, the, the government in the last 12 years hasn't showed up at your door demanding that you be killed. So he's, he's a crazy man. Well, let me tell you something very interesting about your heritage as a believer. What do we say when we want to proclaim that Jesus is God? We say three words. Jesus is Lord. Sounds like a very popular statement, right? Jesus is Lord. This was an anthem back in the days of the New Testament Christians. Does anybody have any idea why they were saying it this way? Jesus is the Lord. I mean, Jesus is the Lord. They would draw fish. It's called the ichthus. Sometimes the ichthus would look like this. I'll explain why, what that was. Because in the Greek, you'll see that it makes up the letters of Jesus is Lord. But I can, okay? But here's the, here's the reason. Emperor Domitian, if you were in, uh, in Rome at that time, was demanding that you call him Lord. So you would have to say that Caesar is, you would say, Caesar is our Lord and our God. And the Christians came along and said, uh-uh, no, he's not. Jesus Christ is our Lord and our God. This is why it became so popular. Jesus' Lord came out of opposition of saying, no, 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 we believe the witness of the apostles and we believe that Jesus is Lord. Isn't that interesting? And so... This was this war that was going on. Now, now we're starting to develop an idea or a picture of what's going on in the early New Testament church. You have a large Roman Empire here in Rome. Here's the Roman Colosseum. And you have Christians. You know, here's the little Christians right here. Little Christians. And there's persecution going on. Trying to carry it out. So what's going to happen? What would happen if all of a sudden ISIS takes over the United States? Let's make it real personal. Well, don't talk like that. Well, let's just say it happened. It could happen. You never know. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And they started coming in and demanding all the... Or it's happening over in the millions. They come in and start saying to the church... I was listening to this at the gym on the news today. 
if, the, uh, if ISIS goes into an Iraqi city and they find a Christian community, three things are going to happen. Number one, you're going to convert to Islam. Number two, you're going to pay a fine. And number three, you're going to be killed with the sword. So there's one of two options you have. You're either going to, you are either going to convert or you're going to stay strong. And how many know that 100% of people don't do everything? So in the church, not every Christian was standing strong. This is why John's writing. When faced with persecution, many Christians were openly denying Christ and others were trying to strike a deal with pagan powers. You know what Christians were doing? And this is why the book of Hebrews was written. When you read the book of Hebrews, you will discover that Hebrews is not really a letter. It's not set up that way. It's set up as a homily or a sermon. Hebrews is a sermon. When you read it, you'll discover there's very good structure to it. It's a sermon preaching to Christians that were about to go through a persecution and they were Jews who had come out of Judaism and were Messianic and were trying to go back into Judaism for one purpose. So they didn't get persecuted as Christians because Rome would protect Jews. But they would not protect Christians. And when Christianity first began, Christians were not looked at as Christians. They were looked at as a sect of Judaism and therefore were protected. And when the Jews wanted the Christians to be persecuted, they denounced the Christians so that the Roman Empire would kill the Christians. Anybody care tonight for this? Well, are you going to tell me? Aren't you going to tell me what the six seals and the trumpet judgments are? Or this is all going to make sense. We have got to see the context, see the bigger picture. Okay. Now, um, let's go here to chapter two and chapter three. The very first thing that we're going to see is that in Revelation chapter two and chapter three, that there are seven letters. To seven, uh, address to seven different churches. One letter to each church. These letters are filled with strong warnings for those that are tempted to turn away to Christ and to compromise the world system. Look at what's going on. Uh, in, in chapter 2, verse 4, you have Ephesus. And Ephesus, we all know, is a church that left its first love. And what does that even mean, left its first love? We preach that today, and that means that if you stop going to church and lifting your hands, you've left your first love. Did that, do, you think, was that, do you think that's really what that meant in Ephesus? They're not lifting their hands in church anymore. Now it's something more powerful than just not lifting their hands and going to church. Leaving their first love means they've abandoned Christ. Some of them were leaving the cause. Then you see Pergamum and Thyatira had false teachers coming in. Sardis had a reputation for being alive but dead and Laodicea is lukewarm. So this is a state in the condition of the church. And... Uh, there has to be something that's written to the church, to the people in uh, these, these churches to wake these people up. Now let's see here. Now let me say this quickly. There are four different ways that you're going to be able to interpret Revelation now. Because after we get out of chapter 2 and chapter 3, well first, let me, I've always wondered this question. I looked it up so I can answer it to you tonight. The book of Revelation was not written seven times and delivered to seven churches. It was written one time, and the carrier took it in a circle around the, provident, the Roman providence of Asia, which we know is, know is Turkey today. It's basically western Turkey. And he would have taken it 
around seven times, just this one letter, and would read it. So Thyatira would know what was going on in Smyrna, Smyrna would know what was going on in Ephesus and Laodicea, and vice versa. Just written one time, okay? But after you get past chapter 2 and chapter 3, Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5 are going to get into heavenly visitations, and this is where the book is going to start get confusing. How many of you have ever read Revelation 2 and 3 and said, okay, this is, this is going good so far? <laughs> Get in Revelation 4, and all of a sudden, John's caught up to the throne, and you're lost. You have no idea what's going on. You're going to start seeing, in just a second, probably your biggest problem is you're trying to place this on a chronological time, uh, uh, time frame, and none of this makes sense chronologically. You're going to see in just a second. You have to, so I know we've tried to do that, but you really got to stretch it. The most important thing for you to understand at this point at this point, is there's four ways to interpret the book of Revelation. There's not five. There's not eight. There are only four ways it's important that you write this down if you really are concerned. Number one, there's the preterist. Number two, there is the historicist. Number three, there is the futurist, which you all are. And number five, therefore, there's the idealist. Now, I don't care who you meet, I don't care what they're preaching, I don't care what church they go to, they're one of four, or a mix of four. Alright, so we're going to decide here. A preterist, this word preterist means that you believe in the celebration and fulfillment of things that are yet to come to pass. So if you're a preterist, like I said, you believe in an early date of the book of Revelation, and you believe everything has come to pass, minus the coming of Jesus. In Revelation 19 to 22, what you believe is yet to come. But everything else, this is not something that we're looking to in the future. Alright? You guys here tonight? Yes. I feel like you're here. The historicist says, no, whoa, whoa, wait a second. No, wait a second. Wait a second. We, uh, you know, I, it's possible some things have come to pass. It's possible th- some things haven't come to pass. You know what? We don't know what to do with Revelation. So let's make it into a road map of church history. In other words, the events of Revelation is a prophetic map of everything that's going to happen in the history of the church. So they'll look at things that happened in Luther's day, things that happened Calvin's day, things that happened today, all as something in Revelation speaking to something that's going to now happen in the sake of church history. Right? Then the futurist comes along and says, no, wait a second, guys, wait a second, no. Because Revelation chapter 4 is where the rapture happens. John is caught up in the throne and we don't see the church on earth anymore. And there's a pre-trib and there's a rapture and, and there's all this stuff. So we're going to say that it was written after the fall of the, 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 the Jerusalem. So this, no, no, this is all yet to come to pass. So it's all awaiting fulfillment. And that is just about every one of you I talked to. Then the idealist comes along and says, no, wait a second, no. No, 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 no. It's not about if it's come to pass or not. It wasn't even written to be anything to have to do with history, and it has nothing to do with future fulfillment. This is all symbolism to give pictures of spiritual ideas. So the idealist says it's all basically relative. It's relative and abstract. 
beast with the seven heads and ten horns means it's Satan, and that's his his voraciousness as a, as a conqueror. And, and the, the, you have death on a, and a white horse, and you know going forth to conquer. These are all just spiritual ideas, and you know we can't get into every school specifically tonight. But now do you see how you can look at it? So that means that people that come and they do these kinds of seminars, they're going to go right to one of these. And you got to realize that they might be giving you a whole seminar based upon one of these ideas, but they're not telling you what all the other people believe. So it's important for us to really go into what we believe. Amen. Amen. Find out what we as Christians believe. And I can tell you that when I was in college, I did a 36-page paper on why I'm a futurist and why I believe in the rapture. Um, and so we're just going to believe tonight that it's futurist, and you can just take my word for it until you decide to study on your own. Amen. Okay. Number one, healthy approaches to study in Revelation. Number one, the very first thing we should know is that in order to read this book, you have got to read it with humility. What do I mean by that? All those teachings and books that say Revelation made easy, you throw them out the door. Because Revelation is not easy. Can someone say Amen. Have you ever seen a book that says, like, Revelation made easy, and you thought to yourself, whoa, where have I been this whole time? This whole time I've been messing it up, and Revelation is not easy? <laughs> Revelation is easy this whole time. Why am I getting it wrong? Is everyone else getting it right? And you realize that 99% of believers don't have any clue what's going on in Revelation. So how can it possibly be easy when most people don't even preach from the book past the third chapter? <laughs> then one guy comes along, and he's got it all figured out, right? I don't think that's the case. So I think that when we go to Revelation, we need to be very careful with it. Number two, the, 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 uh, to approach it, you have to spend time trying to discover what the message meant to the people that were originally hearing it. Go with me to Revelation chapter 9, verse 7 through 10. Let me show you what I mean. Picture your first century Christian. Is this good tonight? Yes. I hope you didn't come thinking I was going to crack the mystery of Revelation. We're going to do a little, at about 8.40, we're going to do a, I'm going to show you how to open up the shell and pull something out of it that's useful for you. Is that okay? Okay, let's, well, let's just read chapter 1, Revelation 9. Here you are, you're at home, it's springtime, the birds are chirping, you're enjoying yourself, and you know, it's time for you to read the Bible. Having a good time, you got your iced tea, and God's been ministering to you, and you finally turn your hill songs off. And now you're going to get into the Word. So you go to Revelation, and you just decide you're going to study random chapter, Revelation 9. This is what you come across. The fifth angel blew his trumpet. And you know, I've, you've been coming to Bible study classes, and so you, you're doing what Reverend Palmer tells you to do, and you're, you're making observations. You have an angel, you have an angel blowing a trumpet. And then you see a star that had fallen to earth from the sky, and he was given the key to the, to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Now, pit, excuse me, the bottomless pit. When he opened it, smoke poured out as though from a huge furnace. The sunlight and the air turned dark from smoke. How many would say there's a lot of details in here? Okay, we have an angel, a trumpet, a star, sky, bottomless pit, smoke, a furnace, sunlight, air, turning dark from smoke. Now, then locusts. 
came from the smoke and descended on the earth and they were given power to sting like scorpions. So someone's given them power. They're stinging like scorpions and they were told not to harm the grass or the plants or the trees, but only the people who did not have the seal of God on their forehead. So now we have people. Not only are there people, they don't have a seal. So if they don't have a seal, then there's people that have a seal. They were told not to kill them, but to torture them for five months with pain like the pain of a scorpion sting. These people will seek death but not find it. They'll die, but death will flee from them. And then all of a sudden you read verse number 7 and, and your, your wheels start turning. The, the locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. They had what looked like gold crowns on their head and their faces looked like faces looked with human faces. And they had hair like a woman's hair and teeth like the teeth of a lion. They wore armor made of iron and their wings roared like an army of chariots rushing into battle. They had tails that stung like scorpions and for five months they had the power to torment people. Their king is the angel from the bottomless pit. His name is Abaddon in Greek, Apollyon the destroyer. First terrorists passed, but look, two more terrorists are coming. And you write down in your journal that this is no doubt an Apache U.S. helicopter that is going forth, shooting its rockets, and destroying people. You're convinced of it because, after all, these first century Christians would have no idea what helicopter would look like so after all is a scorpion and the locust now I've read a book that said this that's what the book said and I also read something in a uh, pamphlet that someone was handing out that this is definitely what it's talking about but the question that I would ask then is okay if that's a helicopter then what is the bottomless pit that the helicopter comes out of and who is the king who is the king helicopter? And what is the uh, teeth that are on it? What is the hair for? And what is the furnace? And why do they turn the air dark from the smoke? So the problem is we take one detail and we fit our ideas into it. And then the rest of the details we kind of just leave there. You see what I'm talking about here? So... If you're going to play the detail game, we're going to see in just a second, it's not really good to just start throwing ideas into details. This is how we come up with the newspaper interpretation of it. Revelation is supposed to be seen as a big picture. And sometimes we can make sense of the detail. But even beyond that, I'll even give you all that. Then the question is, why even read this to someone from the first century? Why even, why should this guy who's John has written said, take this letter. Why even go up and read it in front of people if they're not going to understand what a helicopter is? For what purpose? To even let them know. So I think that we should forget this approach and try to understand it in a different light. Amen. When we do that, I think it's going to become more practical and that will separate us from the goofy, prophetic, date setters out there it's not as intelligent and it's probably not what the Holy Spirit was shooting for here amen the next thing that messes us up trying to get rid of revelation fallacies this will really help you get away from the idea that everything's chronological what we like to do listen when I was in um, when I was in my freshman year of college I studied the book of Revelation in my second semester which lasted from Actually, it started in November, or was it, no, I started studying Daniel in December, right after Christmas, and I studied it from December 
all the way until April of 2003. Every night for almost two hours. I studied that book so hard and I went back and forth between Revelation and Daniel. Back and forth, back and forth. I was in Ezekiel and Zechariah. I really spent my time earning my stripes as someone that was studying end times. I was very interested in it. And I did all that studying and the problem was at the beginning I was so certain this is what it meant. But after I had spent more time studying, I realized that I had more questions after that year and a half period of studying than I did when I came through. And the problem when I look back at now, that was over 12 years ago, was that what I was doing was trying to come up with concrete definites, and you can't do that. It's not efficient. Because what we try to do is we take Revelation as a timeline. You have Revelation chapter 1, and you have Revelation chapter 2, verse 3, and then you have Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 19, verse 22. And this is what we say. This is the intro. Forget about it. This is the present age. This is after 4 verse 1. What you have right here is the future age. You have the return of Christ. This is the millennial reign. And then right here is the age of the ages. Got it? And that works up to a certain point, and I believe that is somewhat accurate. But the problem is, is that not everything is going to fit the seal, the trumpet judgment, it's not going to go right down the way as neat as we, as neat as we think it's going to go. So, if you care to write this down, remember this. Allow yourself to get away from chronolo chronological events somewhat. Let me give you an example. I want to show you what I'm talking about. Um, go to Revelation chapter 6, verse 17. This is the sixth seal. It's one of the seals. guys are getting a, a little introduction to Revelation tonight. Of course, I don't think we're going to know exactly what everything is by the time we leave here, but you'll at least be more smart than when you came in, right? Mm -hmm. Is that okay? The six seal, look at Revelation 6.17. And verse number 17 says here, Uh, well, I'll just jump to the end. Okay, you read the... Okay, the sixth seal is open. And it says, I watched the lamb broke the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun became dark as black cloth. And the moon became red as blood. And then all of a sudden, jump down to verse 16. And they cried with the mountains and the rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne. From the lamb of, of God. And in verse number 17, For the great day of wrath has come. And who is able to survive? Great day of wrath. This is talking about the end of the age. So all of a sudden, in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 17, we're at the end of the age. Already. And only in Revelation 6, 17. Well, let's go to Revelation eleven fifteen. Now we're in the trumpet judgments, which follow the seal judgments. says in Revelation 11:15, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, Uh-oh, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Well, guess what happened in Revelation 11:15? Here we are in Revelation 11:15, back at the end of the age. How is that possible? Now we're at the end of the age again. And let's go to... Well, we can simply go to Revelation 19 to 22, which Jesus comes back. I mean, you don't have to go there. Revelation 9, chapter 19, 20, 22. And you'll find out that these chapters bring us to what is known as the end of the age, 
when the devil and his angels are thrown in the bottomless pit with all those who are fearful and abominable and the like. So do you see how we're breaking rank now? You can't squash all these into chronology. I don't think that's how this was meant for to be. And then there's another rule that will help us. I remember when I read a book. I've read numerous books on Revelation. They've all been helpful, and I have a lot of respect for every single one that I've, I've written. You know, I have a lot of respect for Finnis Dake, who was cut me cut my teeth on Revelation. I have a lot of respect for Hilton Sutton and Pat Robertson, these guys that endeavored and, and other books that uh, were helpful all which might I say are futurists they're not they don't come from the preterist side if you want a book that shows you all four side by side I can recommend one um, I'm not if someone says they're a preterist I'm not gonna you know we're not gonna fight over it you just believe it all okay whatever I don't believe that but we can still be brothers and pray together and pray for the kingdom to come I have a lot of respect for these people but I started to see that you know even some of the things they were saying just wasn't wasn't adding up. A lot of it does, but some of it just not quite there yet. I mean, it's just there are some things about Revelation we're not going to know because it's too ambiguous to a point. Um, but they would say, uh, take everything literal. Just take it literal. Where you can take it literal, where you cannot take it literal, take it symbolic. Got it? But let me ask you this question. This is that's a true statement. I believe that in Bible interpretation, pretty much. Uh, but at the same point, we talked about how there's figures of speeches. We talked about how there are metaphors and similes. You remember, we, this was all the way back in Christmas when we first started this class number one. So you got to make room for that. So for, first of all, you got to make room for figures of speech. And this rule doesn't mention that. Number two is beyond figures of speech, you have got to make room for a genre that we have yet to talk about, and that is apocalyptic fantasy. Something that came along in 200 B.C. and was used until 280, and it is not a genre that we as Americans are even familiar with. We don't know this. I mean, this is, they would have understood this. And what apocalyptic fantasy, what I'm calling it, apocalyptic literature did was, it didn't use, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. City in this hill cannot be hidden. If a salt loses its saltiness, wherewith shall it be any good? It must be thrown out. Can you understand what salt is? Does that make sense to you? What is he saying? You preserve the flavor. Without you, this world would be good for nothing. Without you, the world would be in darkness. Clicks, doesn't it? Well, what do you do when someone throws out literal figures of speech and says, let's, let's not bring in, let's stop, let's stop talking about salt. Let's not talk about light. Well, what, do you, what do you want to talk about? Let's talk about a moon turning to blood. And let's, let's talk about a gigantic woman who is the whore of Babylon. She's this woman that she... She has a cup full of the abominations of men and she is just ruling over him and she's a great whore. And let's talk about a seven-headed, ten-horned beast. And everybody's like, what? No connections being made for you. But for the early church, they're like, we, we have this. We know what this is. We know how to handle this. This is a genre that we're used to. 
So that means now we have literal and literal, symbolic and symbolic, but most of the time it's going to be symbolic and it's going to come under this apostolic fantasy and there's sometimes figures of speech. For the most part, you got to go and you got to figure out how to break this genre apart. Now do you see how we're getting somewhere with this, right? So, language is capable of conveying literal truth, but trying to force a literal method on the genre might pervert the author's intended meaning. Let's go to Revelation 17, verse 9. I'm going to read it to you. It just says, This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Well, here's what literal interpretation would do. It says, This calls for the mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Revelation 17, 9. So you'll think that a little, if this is literal, you're going to think that somehow there's a woman in all this and she's sitting on, you know what? She's sitting on seven hills. That's what literal interpretation would do. But if you're a first century Christian, you're not going to take it literal. You know what you're going to say? Seven hills. Wait a second. There is a city built on seven hills. What city is built on seven hills? Rome. First century Christian would understand that Revelation 17 is talking about the city of Rome. Remember, they're not you. They don't live in America. So they, okay, it's on Rome. But it also, you're going to see, and we can't get into the study of Revelation 17, we're going to see that not only is it talking about Rome, it's also symbolic of seven, seven uh, empires that persecuted Jesus. Kingdom. God's kingdom. Egypt, Babylon, Syria, Grecian Empire, the Medes and the Persians and the Romans. And then you're going to see that there's a revised Roman Empire and a revised Grecian Empire yet to come. But we can't even touch it tonight. Talk about that. Are you guys here tonight? Yes. Let's go to Daniel, uh, Re uh, Revelation chapter 1. And verse number 1. Revelation 1, verse number 1. It says here um, that the revelation was signified. And this is important. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show or uh, signify his servants, the events which must come to pass. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John. Signified is a specific word. And you'll see that this comes out of Daniel 2.45, which says, Inasmuch as you saw that stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it was crushed with the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future, so the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Make known means signified. Signified is usually a term that simply means that God is communicating to the receiver of the vision in symbols and dreams. So God chose to reveal this kind of communication to 
his disciple through visions. So you have to take that into understanding. And a lot of the visions that you're going to see, a lot of the references are going to be uh, interpreted through Old Testament symbols. So what are these symbols talking about? Where do we go for answers? You cannot go to the New Testament. Don't go there. They would not have had it. You can't go to the Gospels. They wouldn't have it. What is these Christians have? They're going to have the Old Testament. You got it? What would John have? The Old Testament. Um, so, although, and this is the interesting thing now. There is not one verse in the book of Revelation that is quoted from the Old Testament. Not one verse is explicitly from the Old Testament. But you know what? 70% of the verses in Revelation, that's a lot of verses. 70% echo something from the Old Testament. In other words, it's like uh, you can tell, you know, you ever see how some people get around other people and you can tell, you didn't see them hanging out, but you can tell they've been hanging out together because they, you know, they didn't carry that person's language over. You know, like when I went over to Europe and I came back and I sounded like I was saying certain things in Italian, you know, you know, I didn't have to tell you I was over there. You knew I was over there. Or, you know, husbands and wives, a guy starts dating girl, they start picking up each other's language, oh, I'm doing, okay, you didn't tell they've been around together. You don't have to quote everything they say. Well, guess what? You can tell John has been reading the Old Testament when you read this book. Um, let's do a comparison. This is going to be interesting, okay? And I'll let you guys, we'll be out in just a second. Uh, let's see here. Let's go to Revelation chapter 1. And let's go to Daniel chapter 10. I'm going to show you what I'm talking about. Revelation chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 10. I should have written this out. Revelation 1. Okay, Revelation 1 and verse number 7. says here, look, he comes with the clouds of heaven and everyone will see him and even those who pierced them, all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. Go to verse number 12. It says, when I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven golden lampstands. Let's actually read all the way through verse number 15. And it says, in the standing in the middle of the lampstands was one like the son of man. He was wearing a long robe with the gold sash across his chest. His head his head and his hair were like white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like mighty ocean waves. Sounds pretty good, right? Amen? Well, let's go to Daniel chapter 10, verse number 5 through 6. Where did, I mean, did John just come up with this on his own? Is something that John thought of? I don't know. Look what it says. I looked up and saw a man dressed in linen clothing with a belt of pure gold around his waist, his body like a precious gem, his face like lightning, his eyes flame like short torches, his arms and his feet shone like polished bronze, and his voice roared like a vast multitude of people. What are the similarities in here? Number one, coming in the clouds. Number two, one like the Son of Man. Number three, hair on head white like wool. Number four, eyes blazing like fire. Number five, voice like the sound of rushing waters or the crowd of a multitude. Number six, arm and legs like the gleam of polished, burnished bronze. 
this did not come to John. It was not original. It came out of Daniel. And this is not the only example in the book of Revelation. This was given to John by Jesus Christ as something that the believers who read would have seen in the Old Testament. Is it a legitimate revelation? Absolutely. But it's also synonymous with the Old Testament. That's one thing to understand. Um, so, like I said before, if you want to make sense of revelation, you have to become familiar with the Old Testament. Amen? Okay. I was going to go through a outline of Revelation, but we don't have the time to do it tonight. I was going to show you how the introduction, the seven trumpets, the powers of evil. But I want to give you a way real quick tonight how to just pull something out of Revelation. Let's say, you know, do a little exercise, kind of make sense of something, right? Does that sound okay? Let's go to Revelation chapter 12, and we're going to work with verse 1 through 17 quickly. So... I would suggest if you're serious about studying the book of Revelation that, you know, the first thing you do is you just drop all your left behind books and leave them alone. <laughs> if you went to see that movie with Nicolas Cage and the left behind movie, it may have been entertaining, but I, don't, I can't say that the theology was probably that good. Typical radical futurist. And I'm a futurist, but I'm sure that it's probably not going to happen the way Rayford Steele experiences it. Maybe, but I wouldn't bet on it. But you know what? I appreciate what they've done because at least they've put us... If anything they've done, they have uh, reminded us that we need to be watchful because it is going to happen. I do believe in the rapture. I preach the rapture. I hold to the rapture. I believe very much so. And, I'm, and, and you cannot disprove the rapture from Scripture, but it's, you, you can't prove it either. I mean, technically you can't. But um, you're going to either have to pick and choose a side. It's ambiguous. It's one of those things that we're just either going to happen or it's not. But I believe it with all my heart. But it's, you know, it's just, you have to decide on it. And if you told me you don't believe in a rapture, I don't hate you. We're going to get along. It's going to be okay. Amen. <laughs> Revelation 12, 1 to 17. Let's read it and we'll work with it. And then we'll let you guys go. You'll be out of here by 9. Someone say amen. I appreciate you guys coming out in the cold and listening to me lecture on something that... You could actually be at home right now watching TV or something. Amen. Amen. God will bless you because you came to hear this. Let's read it real quick. Here we go. I'm going to read it fast. Is that okay? Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman, pay attention to the details now, clothed with the sun, the moon beneath her feet, a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant. She cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. So here we see a pregnant woman dressed kind of funny. She gave birth, and it says, Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. Okay, here's our dragon with seven crowns on his head. His tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky and his, threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman, and she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. So what are we dealing with right here? This is apocalyptic fantasy. So we're going to have to piece what these symbols mean. We're going to have to piece them together on what we believe that the first century audience would have understood these symbols to be in light of what they were going through. She gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with the rod of an iron rod, and her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God in his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness. She just gave birth, right? Where God had prepared a place to care for her for 1,260 days. Now this is where it even gets more difficult because we have time here. 
There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, and the dragon lost the battle, and he, he and his angels were forced out of heaven. The great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, It has come at last, salvation and power. Oh, look at this. And the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. Now this is humongous. Because the idea of the kingdom is being preached. And I'm going to be preaching. I'm not going to be teaching so much on the kingdom. The next Bible studies. So we're going to end with this one. I'm going to preach to the kingdom like you've never heard it before. You're going to understand why this idea of the kingdom is so. It is the most powerful thing in scripture. Jesus' message. And here we see it, just a few chapters before the Bible closes. It says, The accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to the earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. So here come the martyrs. Now we got martyrs in here. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who live in the heavens rejoice. But the terror will come on the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing that he has a little time. So now we see an angry devil. With martyrs. This is making, it's starting to come together. You're starting to see it. When the dragon realized that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But she was given two wings like those of a great eagle so she could fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. There she'd be careful and protected from the dragon at time and times and a half. Then dragon tried to swallow and to try to drown the woman with a flood of water that flowed from his mouth. But the earth helped her by opening his mouth and swallowing the river that gushed from out of the mouth of the dragon. And the dragon was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children. All who keep God's commands and maintain their testimony for Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. Verse number 17. We just talked about the historical context. Let's start from it from back and move forward to the front. I just told you what was going on. I just gave you the story that Domitian was this mean, angry empire emperor. He's madman. He's lunatic. He wants everybody to call me Lord and God. But the Christians have a testimony. They believe that the apostles' testimony about Jesus is true. It's been evidenced and witnessed to them by the Holy Spirit. And they're upset and they're getting ready to denounce their faith. And John writes some letters and says to the seven churches, Don't give up. Stop. Don't walk away. Give up your life. It's worth it. You're being persecuted, but don't give up Jesus. Because you want to know something? He's still in control. And look what it says in verse number 17. Here's your answer. The dragon was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children, all who keep God's commands and maintain their testimony for Jesus. This was the purpose of the letter. To tell the Christians... Don't give up your testimony. Wow. So now you see that the children, they're the rest of the children that the woman gave birth to. Where do these children come from? They came out of the womb of the woman at the beginning who was so clothed with the sun and with the stars. And these children are being, being persecuted. Why? Because the child that was first born escaped the wrath of this great dragon. Can anybody kind of see what this is talking about? Are you here? Well, let's try to make sense of this for a second. Remember, right now we're first century Christians. Domitian's after us. And we get this letter and it comes along and we see that all of a sudden I saw a woman clothed with the sun 
with the moon beneath her feet and the crown of 12 stars on her head. Does this sound like anything in the Old Testament to you? How about Genesis chapter 37? There was a young man by the name of Joseph and he had a dream that the stars were bowing down to him. And how many were there? Twelve. And the sun and the moon were bowing down to him. So what do you think the woman is talking about? This is talking about... How about we say that the woman in this, just because of what type she is, and you say, well, why did she pick this? Why did he pick that 12 stars and, and sun-clothed woman? How about it's just apocalyptic fantasy? This is like, you know, you ever watch Dragon Ball Z? Why does Goku have funny hair? Why does he walk around with a big force field over him? It just makes you look powerful. Just symbolism. doesn't necessarily have to have a great detail. You would be better off in Revelation, understanding the historical context and the situation, than trying to pull apart every single detail. Right. right? Instead of going into details, find out what's going on. So we have this woman, and the woman, because of 12 stars, uh, uh, and the moon beneath her and her feet, and 12 stars on her head, how about the woman is Israel? Nation Israel. And she was pregnant, she cried out labor pains because of the agony, and she gave birth. And she gave birth, and this was a man-child. Now, we have a child here, so who is the child going to be? We'll call it a male baby, male child. I don't, I don't think it's going to be hard for us to figure this out. She gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Does anybody read Psalm chapter 2? Psalm chapter 2 is that he rules all the nations with an iron scepter. Because remember this. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. The kingdom of God has to have a king, and the king is going to be Jesus. And so this is an allusion back to Christ and his role, not as, as Messiah, yes, but more specifically, he's the king of the kingdom. What would this be saying in that day? This would be saying that, oh, wait a second, you got it right. You're serving the real king. You're serving Jesus. He's the one that has the rod of iron, and guess what? He's going to dash the kings of the earth into pieces. So the man-child represents Jesus, Messiah, who came from Israel. All right? And it says that the woman fled into the wilderness where God had a place to care for her for 1,260 days. We're going to start seeing now that this is where the futurist interpretation comes in because we're going to see fulfillment here. And I don't want to get into the laws of prophetic perspective. War in, angel, war in heaven, Michael and his angels fought against the dragons and, 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 and the dragon lost the battle and his angels were forced out of heaven. The great dragon, Satan, was deceiving the whole world, was thrown down and it says that, you know, we've read all this before. So what we see here is that um, you have this dragon. Who does the dragon represent? Does anybody have any? I mean, it just says it for that Satan. Satan's cast down to the earth. And then um, you see that you have... The next thing is the rest of the children in verse number 17. Who is the rest of the children? Exactly, Emily. But let me ask you this question. The rest of the children is the church. Christ escapes. Now look at right here. It says that, I heard a voice, it's come at last, salvation and power in the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ. So you see that it goes from Jesus' birth to Jesus' glorification. Which means that the fact that he didn't talk about anything that happened in his life simply means that this quick 
shift from the birth to escaping the devil to his glorification gives the message that Jesus secured the victory. You got that? So in Jesus securing the victory, what do you think happens? The devil's still loose. You have two kingdoms. I've taught this. You have the kingdom of this earth, and you have the kingdom of God, and they're existing side by side. Jesus has secured the victory. But guess what? Satan's angry. Because he knows his time is short. He's short for what? For the consummation of the kingdom. So you know what the enemy does? He comes along and he says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take it out on the rest of the, of the children of the woman. And you'll find out that the rest of the children of the church, because after all, where did the church come from? Came out of Israel. Don't let anyone tell you that we didn't. We did. The church came out of Israel because you'll find out that all of our roots as Christians come all the way back. Do we serve the God of Israel? Yes, we do. Revealed in the person of Jesus Christ and the promised Holy Spirit that was given to Israel has been poured out upon Christians. And when Jesus, I was reading this verse today, I was studying it, when Jesus says that he was going to be lifting him, when he was going to be lifted up upon the cross, he was going to draw all men unto himself. What he was meaning was not just Jews, he was going to draw Gentiles. So Christianity came out of, uh, of Judaism. So this is what the Bible is saying, is that simply that now the enemy is persecuting the Christians. So why, what, what, is all this, what is all this to say? What's the final message in all this? You're a New Testament Christian. You read this. And all of a sudden, the answer becomes clear. John could have just wrote this. Do you know what this is all saying? It's simply saying that the reason why you're going through this persecution, the reason why you're being destroyed for your faith, is because Jesus has secured the victory. He has overcome the devil. He has won the battle. He is the ruling, triumphant king of the kingdom. And you are now citizens of the kingdom. And the devil is mad and he's upset. And there is war going on in the heavens. And it's this war that is the reason for your persecution. And it's telling them why they're suffering now. Because Satan is doing it in the heavenlies. And he's affecting Rome through it. So you'd read this and you'd say, what are the spiritual principles? What are the, what are the principles behind this? I mean, do we have any theological... So, so what we've done is we've discovered what this meant to the biblical audience. Then we ask ourselves this question like we've always done. What are the similarities between the biblical audience and us? Well, the biblical audience back then, 96 AD, they had the first advent and they're looking to the second advent. We're kind of in the same position they are. Yes, it's been 2,000 years just about, but more or less and. Same thing. Jesus has come and Jesus has yet to come. And number two is that the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is yet to come. Number three is that we can expect to suffer. We don't have it here, but that's not because God has blessed us here. But let me tell you something. It could be any day now. We lose those rights. And you have to understand that if we lost those rights as Americans, God would still be with us. Your nationality, yes, you're American. I believe in that. I believe in honoring your country. But I'll tell you this. Sometimes we become so patriotic that we forget that we're not Americans first. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. And if your country ever came against that, 
what would you be more loyal to, your country or your kingdom? I know people that are Americans above the kingdom of God. Could you stand up to your country and say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not, you're going to have to throw me in prison. You're going to have to see me as a traitor. Because you know what the Christians were considered? Traitors. We think that it's the worst thing in the world to be a traitor. Well, what happens if America became ungodly? Would you be willing to be considered a traitor and hated by your government? Do you have that much faith in the kingdom of God? Some deep questions tonight. Take the American flag tattoo off your chest and everything. I'll tell you this, I'm very thankful for the United States and I'm a patriot. But I'll tell you what, it's another thing that if I had to let it go, I would let it go because I sold out to the kingdom of God. I'm a citizen of Jesus' kingdom. And here are some theological principles we could derive. You ask yourself, what is the, what is the theology in here? What are, these, what are the timeless truths in God's word? Number one, spiritual warfare is real. Satan's been defeated by the life of Christ. Christians can overcome the devil by living and proclaiming the gospel of Christ faithfully. And well, Christians will suffer for their faithful witness to Jesus. Does this fit in with the rest of the Bible? I'm pretty sure it does. And how do you apply these principles? Well, you have to pray. Prayer is what drives the kingdom. Number two, you preach and minister with boldness. And three, be ready to suffer and have your dependency on Jesus. So you see how we pulled that out of the Bible? Did, would anybody say that tonight's lesson on Revelation was somewhat goofy and, you know, kind of out there? I don't think so. I think it was pretty spot on. I think that this is the best we can do with it because... I want to be careful with Revelation because it is a, remember this, it was a letter that was ap apocalyptic and prophetic at the same time. It was a prophecy. There's a prophetic element we didn't talk about in here tonight. Things are yet to be fulfilled, but we draw from the strengths of everything. It was history. There are ideas in it. There are symbols in it. But there's things that are yet to be fulfilled. So whether you're preterist, historicist, you're a futurist or idealist, we can draw from the strengths of those and realize that this is something that doesn't have to be intimidating. It will become far less intimidating if you understand how a first century Christian understood it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for everything that you've written in your word. We thank you for the book of Revelation. We ask you for your understanding and your wisdom, your guidance, as we seek to discover your meaning, Father. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would bless each and every person. I pray, Father, that you would lift up every down heart tonight. Pray for every person that's seeking a breakthrough in their life. Anyone that's discouraged, fearful, upset, anxious. I pray that they would understand, as those in the Word of God understood, that you're still on the throne. That your kingdom is an unshakable kingdom. That those who follow you and believe in you and have received of you, those who love you and abide in you and remain in you, that, Father God, nothing can take us out of your hands. We trust in that, Father. We know, Father, that the only thing that remains is our membership in your kingdom, not what we have today. And everything that we've done for your kingdom, Lord, out of obedience, is the only thing that is going to last. For those, Father, that have given much money to the kingdom, that eternal reward will outweigh anything that's earthly. For those, Father, that have obeyed even in the face of shame, pray that they would understand, Lord, that that shame is just a light affliction compared to the glory that they receive for standing before you and representing the name of Jesus. 
I ask that you give each person a deeper understanding and a deeper desire and a hunger to know your kingdom and how it functions in their life. Bless each person. Keep them safe as they go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now that you've heard the light of today, connect with us. Go to our website, lightoftoday.org. Write us at P.O. Box 403, Wald Lake, Michigan, 48390. Or tweet Chris Palmer at twitter.com forward slash Chris Palmer. Our podcasts are free and updated regularly, so make sure to share them with a friend and tune in again to The Light of Today with Chris Palmer.